0: Before you listen to this great episode of Partner with Survivor, we'd just like to tell you about a powerful new practice tool the Safe and Together Institute has launched. Our perpetrator pattern mapping tool has been available for 10 years, but now it's available for the first time in a web-based version. What it does is really help you map perpetrators' patterns of behavior onto child family functioning, talk about its intersections with mental health, substance abuse, and other issues, address intersectionalities, worker safety, all in an easy to use online package that protects the confidentiality of your information and lets you wrap it all up in a neat little package, basically to print it out and to kind of document all those different pieces of information. This is a tool that can be used by both survivors and practitioners. And for the very first time, it's available immediately online without any other prior training.
1: The training is embedded in this powerful practice tool so that teams uh, that have not been trained in Safe and Together can immediately begin mapping in an effective way.
0: That's right. It's like having a Safe and Together coach in your back pocket is what I like to say. There you go. So we really encourage you to go to our virtual academy, academy academy.safetogetherinstitute.com. Check it out. You know, you can subscribe to it immediately or you can check out a free demo version for 30 days. So please reach out to us and try this new tool. Now enjoy this great episode of Partner with Survivor. And we're back. And we're back. Hello. Hello. This is uh, Partner with Survivor and I'm David Mandel. Executive Director. Wait. Oh, wait. Sorry. Executive Director of the Safe and Together Institute.
1: And I'm Ruth Ramundo Mandel. Jumping the gun this morning, um, and I am the um, Strategic Relationship Manager and Communication Manager at Safe and Together Institute.
0: And Um, you are listening to Partner with Survivor, right? You are. And uh, And
1: I'd like to to just acknowledge that we are on Tungusas Land in the beautiful Farmington Valley where it is springtime and we can still see the river down there and we've got all the beautiful spring flowers coming up and the bees and the butterflies are waking up and it's a glorious time of year and that this is part of the land of the greater Algonquin tribe, a living nation, and this land has never been ceded.
0: Right. And just so any acknowledging uh, indigenous elders, past, present, emerging who are listening in and mm-hmm. you say it's spring, but my feet are still cold. <laughs> I, just, I, just, I just I just want to be really clear.
1: It works here. Yeah, you know. Know.
0: So anyway, so this is we I we took a, a break and now we're back with uh, with force. And so we did one interview this week with a with a survivor practitioner and we're doing another one today
1: with a survivor a practitioner, practitioner, but also
0: somebody who's like a triple, quadruple quintuplet threat you know, and so I'm just really excited about this. So, so today we're going to be talking about um, uh, impact, long-term impact, medium, short-term impact of strangulation on domestic violence survivors, which is, you know, what I'll say, and it's just sort of so much work has been focused on, importantly, on strangulation as a risk marker for homicide, Right. you know, and that's so critical. And Today we're gonna to look at a different angle, which is really understanding those impacts on, on people who survive strangulation attempts. And and we're gonna be talking to an expert.
1: We that. are. I, I want I want to fully step into this space with full emotional responsibility. And I wanna say that this topic gives me a lot of anxiety, and I'm feeling a little anxious about talking about it. Um, as a person who's experienced these type of behaviors. Um, And I just want to acknowledge that this particular conversation can be very intimate and very triggering. And I just want to let people know that's okay and take care of yourself and and listen in bits if you have to. Um, And there may be moments where you hear a little emotion in my voice, just because this is something that I've seen and experience. And I've seen it happen to other people. And it's also happened to me. So I've got both ends of the spectrum. Um, so please take care of yourself if you are a survivor or if you're a professional who's had trauma, you know, secondarily from dealing with this issue.
0: Okay. So I am going to introduce our guest and and um Neko McGregor. So so I'm and I'm really honored to do this. And, and I'm just gonna give a little backstory about how we met, you know, because you know you you go places and you don't know what's going to happen and so I went for the first time to Regina Saskatchewan I've never I've been to lots of Canada and to
1: lots of
0: lots of Canada is that is that a is that a poor construction I've been to lots of Canada I've a, that that but I've never been to Saskatchewan <laughs> it's beautiful and um you know and we had a great experience with with the people there the conference attendees really looking at the introducing safe and together there and, and was was really wonderful and then as a bonus you know they're co-presenting on the as part of the conference was was Necca McGregor mm-hmm. and so let me introduce her and Neka, it's so good to have you on the, on the show partner with survivor and so formally she is the co-founder and executive director of the women's center for social justice better known as women at the center and and this is a unique nonprofit created by and for women, trans and gender diverse survivors of gender-based violence. And so so just that was part of it. We're like, we wanna to talk to you about you know this, this women run centered, survivor centered organization, but she's a, also a black intersectional abolitionist feminist, international speaker and trainer. And she's an expert advisory panel member of the Canadian Femicide Observatory for Justice and Accountability, and sits on several advisory boards and committees, including the Federal Advisory Council on the Federal Strategy Against Gender-Based Violence um, and co-founded the Black Femicide Canada Council. And so beyond that, she's a business person, she's a lawyer. And, and so we're. I feel like we're getting this wealth of expertise in all these really important areas. Mm-hmm. And so Neka, welcome to partner with a survivor.
2: Thank you so much, David. Thank you so much, Ruth. I'm really, really excited to be speaking with you two. And just to start off as we do in uh, all, of, all of Canada, <laughs> to take David's comment. We always start also with a land acknowledgement. And so I want to say that I'm zooming in today from my home on stolen indigenous land that belongs to the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, the Mississaugas of the Credit, Um, the Anishinaabe, many Inuit and uh, Métis people. I consider myself um, an uninvited guest on indigenous land. And part of, I frame it like this, part of the rent that I pay as a guest on their land is that all my work and all the work of my organization is centered around solidarity with indigenous women, especially with indigenous women, girls and two-spirit people and in support of their demand for um, rights and an end to the genocide that they are experiencing. So I'm, I'm really, really honored to be joining you today. I'm very excited about the conversation. I wanna thank you Ruth in particular for your vulnerability, right? And the courage it takes to open up and disclose that you've experienced this sort of stuff. Cause I I have as well. And that's why I do I do this work. So anytime I get a chance to talk, I will. <laughs> I do.
0: There <laughs> I just, you go. That's talking is good. Talking we're, is we're, very we're, good. We're a big believer in talking in this right. household. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Neka, um, you know, one of the things that, that, that I'm going to want you to talk, we're to, we decided to talk first about the, the strangulation research and how important that is and what you've learned. And one of the things that really drew me, you know, to it was, you know, we spent a lot of time at the Safe Together Institute talking about really discussing and identifying harm, you know, that flows from perpetrators patterns of behavior. Because I think a lot of times people will focus on risk factors, they'll focus on the response and services. These are all good things, right? What does somebody need? But a lot of times they won't understand or be able to contextualize how the survivor's life has changed, the adult survivor, the child's life has changed, how their functioning has been impacted. And and so they'll often decontextualize that person's quote unquote problems that they're having—housing, mental health, addiction—from right. their their perpetrator's behavior to them. And 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 then at the same time, professionals, to be honest, and calling out professionals that I'm part of, will say, "Well, we're trauma informed," and say, "Wait a second, yeah. we got to slow down because if you can't contextualize these impacts back to the perpetrator's behavior, you're not trauma informed." Right. And I'm sorry if you. You can you can talk about safety in the clinical room and that right. kind of thing, but but if you can't articulate the connections back, we're right. not we're not where we need to be. You're a I trauma think.
1: generalist. You're,
0: you're right. You're, you're a you're trauma not generalist
1: just, you know. if you can't so, draw the connections.
0: So Sorry. I I just say that. So I would love to you know this that one of the things that really drew me into your work was so this conversation that I don't think I'd heard before about these are the harms. This is sort of when somebody survives strangulation. Yeah. This is what happens to them. This is what they can experience. This is what you should look for. So, can you just kind of bring us into your to your work? How it started, what it is, what you learned.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And and you you started with sort of uh, explaining how we met. So, David's right. We I was in Saskatch- uh, Saskatchewan, and I I'm I live in Canada. I've lived in Canada for thirty years, and I'd never been there. So we were invited and I did my thing. I did my talk. I presented on research, which is still the only Canadian context research on non-fatal strangulation um, amongst survivors of intimate partner violence. So I did my thing and then I sat down, we took a break and then this guy uh, in a beautiful dapper suit uh, steps on the stage and starts talking. And I'm David, I, I thought you thought that I was being disruptive because I kept on whooping. He was I did not every, think you were every point, every point that you made was spot on. And I'd never, ever in the 20 years I've been doing this work, never heard anybody talk about perpetrator accountability and helping um, service providers again, you use the word contextualize, contextualize that behavior. So I was. In the middle of the crowd, <laughs>
0: I—I'll I, take an amen. I'll take Disney an amen.
1: He's also partnered with me. Yeah. I'm a whooper. You're so. a whooper.
0: Yes, oh, he totally. is. Yes, she
1: is. Okay. I'll,
0: I'll take yeah. an amen anytime it comes to me. You know, were, in, a, in a in a in a when I'm speaking. So yeah,
2: it was great. It was great. And so, yeah, the the work that we did was, I said, um, a number of years ago, we received funding from. In uh, Ontario, there is Women's College Hospital, and they gave us fifteen thousand dollars—not a lot of money, but fifteen thousand dollars—to investigate the impacts of non-fatal strangulation on survivors of partner-inflicted um, injuries. So we brought together uh, fifteen women. We, you know, ethics approved. We sought ethics for the research. Brought together fifteen women who identified as survivors and had experienced traumatic brain injury, uh, sorry. Experienced strangulation, and then asked them a series of one-on-one questions, and from that uh, we're able to sort of, you know, as research does, you identify the themes, and then started looking at okay, well, what are people doing? What are service providers who are in the business of supporting survivors? What are they doing to attend to the needs of this population? And one of the things we also found based on the, um, I'm going to digress, I have a, a guy crush on Casey Gwynn. Casey is out at uh, in San Diego, uh, the Family Justice Center. So based on the work that him um, and, um, oh my God, I forgot her name, she's going to kill me, Gail Strack, uh, Casey and Gail are doing on, on non fatal strangulation, we sort of built on that, right, in the Canadian context and try to identify resources and tools, right, to help survivors and also to help everybody understand that the work that we do, because we are survivors, is primarily for the benefit of survivors. So we came up with a whole bunch of um, sort of strategies and tools that was directly aimed at providing support to survivors. And one of the things that that really impacted me from doing that work was how many of the women had experienced multiple episodes of of strangulation. It wasn't just one, many, many, many episodes, how many of their partners had used manual, so it's by hand strangulation, how these episodes of strangulation was done deliberately, right, And, and done in a way where he was intended for her to understand that he had her life in his hands and so for most of the, for most of the women many of the women the strangulation was done with her partner or ex-partner looking at her as he was strangling her as a way again to uh get some, derive some joy off of watching her and and her pain a lot of the women like you know a huge percentage of them um thought that they were going to die in that particular incident that they were talking about some of the women had their children present at the time. One of the women, uh, and when I, I do this, and David, you, you'll recall this. I, I use the words of the women um explicitly as a way to bring them back into the conversation. And one of the mothers was talking about how she was screaming, telling her son to run, you know, leave, get, get away and go to the grandmother's house and tell the grandmother, let the grandmother know how she died. If she dies, that the, the grandmother should know that, you know, how uh, Jarin, one, one woman was talking about the, what precipitated, what led to that particular um, incident of strangulation. And it was because she'd just given birth, right? She'd just given birth, just come back from hospital and he wanted to have sex and she didn't because... All women who've given birth the day after you are very, very sore. She didn't want to have sex. He wanted to have sex. And so he started beating her up and started strangling her. So that research really uncovered a lot of information on the realities of women who had experienced it. And then to the point you were were asking about what are the short, short, mid and long-term consequences. And I I love to talk about this because people are so unaware. And not only is the community unaware, but the survivors themselves were not aware that the symptoms that they were living through was, you know, you can relate it straight back to those instances of strangulation. So it was a brilliant piece of research.
1: Yeah. And we need more of that. And we need that to seep down into the medical community. Right. And their practices of um, assessment <clears throat> for both women and for kids, <laughs> because unfortunately, as much as there's a very large gap around knowledge and assessment and accountability for non-lethal strangulation for women, there's an even bigger gap around that for children right. who also experience those behaviors and actually, I think they experience them at a greater rate of regularity than most people are willing to admit. Um, and and I'd like to really just acknowledge as well that the injuries of non fatal strangulation are often lifelong, mm-hmm. and drawing the connections between cervical spinal injuries, carotid artery injuries. And traumatic brain injury is a skill that more practitioners and doctors need to gain, but also um, that um, witnessing non-fatal strangulation is an incredibly traumatic event. It is a very scary thing when you see somebody's life being strangled out of them, and it's 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 the action of it, it's the sounds. It's 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 the whole experience of watching that happen, and that is child abuse. Mm-hmm. And we should name that super clearly. That if one parent is strangling another parent in front of children, that is child abuse. I,
0: you know, I was I wasn't. There's so much to what you were saying that I wanted to come back to because just even in those five minutes you gave her, there's you gave us there's so much, so much. Um, but I'll, I'll I'll go to this part. You know, Ruth, based on what you just said, which is that i think um the the it's so important because we deal at the institute so much with child centered things so you know family court and 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 child protection and and so much of the model is built around this child centered approach and and what you just said just mm-hmm. speaks to this piece which is you know that um it it's easy to be appropriately kind of focused on the the lethal near lethal nature of that action and and the consciousness and the and I don't want the intimacy is sort of is a bad word or sort of it's just I don't want to kind of you mm. know carried over into the positive use of intimacy but it, there's an intimacy you're describing in that face forward looking in your eyes kind of thing there's and, and so i wouldn't why,
1: call it intimacy i know
0: but it's but it's i would actually i
1: would actually that's that's a that's yeah. a that's a form of deep pleasure yeah in harming other people yeah. that's a form of deep pleasure in controlling other people and that information about the 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 behaviors of a perpetrator while they're strangling a person right if, if perceivably they're taking pleasure out of that action, that makes them a very dangerous perpetrator.
0: (laughs) And and I guess comparing that to the depersonalized or kind of thing of shooting somebody from a distance or something like that. But going to the kid thing for a second that I really want to underline for our, our listeners, that those are, we talk about those being parenting choices, what you just described NECA is, you know, is this idea, I'm choosing to do this in front of my kids Mm -hmm. I am, I am not only physically and psychologically and, and, and medically harming my partner
1: and risking their life,
0: risking their life, but I'm also, you know, terrorizing my children, you know, I am putting in motion a whole bunch of things that will affect my partner's functioning, you know, and, and so just, you know, to your point, you know, sort of about observing that, Mm -hmm. you know, whether you're an adult or child observing that, the, the the tremendous trauma right. that's there. Right. I know that's to me it's just one of the things that stands out. Right.
2: I love I love that part around and Ruth to your point around uh, the impacts on children and how if a perpet- if the perpetrator to use the language if the the person that's causing the harm is unconcerned about the impact on their child of witnessing. I think that makes, yeah, you're right. It makes them an unfit parent. Right. Mm -hmm. And yet what we've seen, because we also, part of our work is we do what we call court watch where we go into, we have in Ontario, what's known as specialized domestic violence courts. So we go into these specialized domestic violence courts where perpetrators are, are seen by supposedly specialized judges specialized police specialized crowns and who supposedly have a really good understanding of gender you know intimate partner violence but our court watchers has, has dis, you know shown that there's nothing specialized really about these courts at all because judges are still um allowing men who have strangled and used the, these types of really terrorist tactics against their partners judges are uh, letting them off with a peace bond and then mm. if when there are children involved these men are seeking custody of the child of their children and will use the impact of the way that the mother is now functioning as a result of the strategy right. right. they'll right. use that in evidence against her as a way to get um custody of the children by saying no oh, she is unfit she, she's unfit so our work is part of our, our our work is around educating judges and crowns to get a, a really better handle on on the link between strangulation and the consequences on the mother, the woman, as well as helping family law lawyers get a better understanding of that as well.
1: That's really vital. <clears throat> it's incredibly vital that we're capable of of drawing the links obviously between that intimate partner behavior and not assuming that those behaviors aren't also potentially being, being done to children. Right. Um, and, and the, dis, the disclosure pathways for children, children are, are really not believed or minimized when they speak about that physical violence that they're right. experiencing. So it's, it's really important that we take these two and we kind of, we put them together that the that the field focuses a little bit more on the long-term impacts of this, rather than just looking at it from the standpoint of, well, this was non-fatal strangulation; she didn't die in this right. instance. But what are all the factors around that person now? Right. Um, and that's for for us in the Safe and Together model, naming the impacts and naming the person responsible Excellent. is a, is is vital to accountability to behavior change, and also to the safety and well-being of the full family, not just the adult survivor, but also the children in that case.
0: It, it It's very central to our work with the family law space and and also child protection to make those. And that's what I was speaking about earlier, about that contextualize exactly what you said, contextualizing back to telling the story that this mom here is having memory issues and functioning issues because this other person made a choice. Therefore, that has to reflect back on their parenting. It can't just be She's struggling with right. parenting right now because of memory deficits or or cognitive issues. Whatever might have flowed from a, a strangulation or multiple strangulation attempts by this person. So I just want to go back and and just give you a chance to highlight anything else, Neca, out of that research or just you know the the subsequent learnings related to strangulation as you 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 focused on it.
2: So. Thank you for that because David I, I, and Ruth, I think this conversation is really um, central to advancing knowledge right across society and not just you know to practitioners or um, to whether they're in the legal profession or the, or the medical profession. But I, I always speak my truth to survivors. So every time I'm in spaces like this, it is to let survivors know a couple of things. Whether I say it at the beginning, the middle, or the end, I'm saying it now that they're not alone, because oftentimes, um, and what we found from the research was that the survivors thought that it was something that they they did and was only happening to them. So to let survivors know that they're not alone, and that you didn't do anything to merit that behavior, and we asked we asked the women in our in our research um you know what precipitated it and as i said for one woman it was um refusing to have sex for another woman the baby was crying uh woke up she'd been the baby was crying she asked the partner to go and see to the baby and he proceeded to beat her up because he didn't think that she should have disturbed his sleep so he he proceeded to strangle her so to let women know that you there is nothing that you did that justifies that type of behavior so that's the second thing and the third part is to understand that some of the and Dave you you, you talked about it some of the the short mid and long term impacts of being strangled not it can happen once but it's exponential the more times you're strangled it doesn't grow twice because you're strangled twice it 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 in, increases multiple multifold right? So the more you're strangled, it's not you strangle four times, so you have four times the impact. You're strangled four times, you have 18 times the impact, right? So to explain to women that some of the, the impacts that they are experiencing, one woman talked about she used to be such a brilliant um, spelling bee. She was a great spelling bee uh, in, in her day, but now she can't remember how to spell words. But she never made the connection between the, the impact of being strangled, the, the, the fact that she lost consciousness, the fact that, you know, blood, oxygen uh, stopped flowing to her brain and damaged her brain cells. She didn't mm-hmm. make that connection. So for, for me, in speaking here today, what I want to say to survivors is that if you are experienced, if you've experienced uh, strangulation and you are experiencing these types of symptoms, there, there's help. Right. There are things there are people out there who are doing incredible work to help um, uh, help you mitigate some of these these impacts. So, for example, we are doing work on traumatic brain injury mm. and intimate partner violence. We're working with we just received some really great funding from Public Health Agency of Canada um, for a four year project to look at sectors, cross sectorial um, uh partners getting together to create a a model that will support survivors of traumatic brain injury. And these survivors include survivors who've experienced strangulation because that strangulation leads to um, uh, brain injury. So the work that we're doing is to help. The work that we're doing is to let survivors know that they're not alone. The work that we're doing is also to help um, practitioners understand the link that brain injury experts and gender-based violence experts need to move from their siloed bubbles and start working together, right? Because the women who are presenting, the women who are coming forward, do not live siloed lives. Right.
1: (laughs) Right. That's the thing. And you watch as as we move through these different sort of uh, services, right, how inefficient and ineffective they are. Because they're not communicating with each other, right. and because they also don't have the core knowledge and skills that they need in order to have that conversation, I told and you. and that is so important.
0: You know, again, my mind is kind of <laughs> bursting with 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 sort of questions and thoughts. One is 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 kind of uh, you know is we'll want you to speak to this in a moment, which is sort of just even the basic, you know, sort of mechanics of strangulation about force you know because the amount of force is is very little but also just i think people have misconceptions about sort of airway versus blood you know not i may not know that we're that we're talking about a really uh multiple systems that can be impacted in a strangulation incident but also just just um and you could take these in any order you know that just i'm thinking about medical the siloing that you're talking about ruth The sort of medical professionals and the mental health professionals, who does the impact of these things sit with? And you know, are we training mental health people right. to include this as part of their their their, their, their assessment? And are medical people trained in the in the impact? So so some of this is about the mechanics. if you could just speak to that. But then about the siloing of and training of professionals, you know, yeah. would be great as well, Naka.
2: Yeah. So in terms of mechanics, um there are certain factors that determine Uh, for example, how quickly a woman who's been strangled will will pass out. So there are three things, mechanics, that we we look at. The area around the neck, right? How um, the area where the pressure is being applied, how much pressure is being applied in that particular area, and the length of time, Mm. right? So the area, the the pressure, and the the length of time. And when I, I tell people in very lay terms, that if you think about um, the amount of force it takes for you, and I did this experiment at at the conference, the amount of force it takes to open a can of of Coke, for example, Pepsi, is insignificant, right? There's a a lot of force, a lot more force in opening a can of Coke than in um, strangling a woman before she passes out. So you don't need that amount, that uh, much force to strangle somebody before they pass out, and thinking about um, when you are when a woman is being strangled, what's actually happening is that you are he is blocking the flow of oxygen to her brain, mm-hmm. so the, the 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 oxygen and the blood flow to the brain, and also blocking the the deoxygenated blood from the the brain back down right into her lungs so the stoppage of flow of of oxygen and blood is what actually kills the the, the cells right mm-hmm. so when a woman has been strangled for multiple times and the damage is accumulated right is accumulating then it is obvious you don't need to be a, a medical practitioner to know that this is obviously causing trauma as in physical trauma to the body as well as the psychological trauma to her and and her way of life. And so for for us, explaining to people so that they have a really, really clear understanding, we talked about the intent um, behind the Perpetrators Act, but also an understanding of to strangle is a choice. To use your hands to strangle is a choice. Most of these men uh, use their hands. It wasn't a ligature, so it wasn't like a, a scarf or a cord. It was their hand. So it was very personal, Right. it was very personal so when they say having your life in my hands they literally, literally mean it they literally mean it so to me i agree with you Ruth, when you talk about how it is um a, a premeditated act mm-hmm. of violence that has very little consequences currently across north america across you know uh, the, the systems in north america because the consequences to these men who strangle their partners has been so insignificant that it enables and allows them to continue to do that. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I I I feel like some of this is the natural consequence of our own learning process in the medical field. That, you know, in the in this in the 80s, 90s, we were focusing more on broken bones, spiral fractures, you know, uh, dislocated shoulders. Uh, those type of injuries. And as medical imaging and medical advances you know, continue, we are able to understand the deeper and deeper impacts of domestic abuse, child abuse on a more sort of body systemic level that really impacts our functioning, our long-term health, which can lead to disability and it's very important for us to say um and for medical people to say these impacts are real they're material they can end somebody's quality of life they can diminish their functioning and they can shorten their longevity and somebody's responsible for that yep it doesn't matter if you can't see it on the outside yep somebody is responsible for all of that that's a human being that now has Uh, potentially disability, uh, minimized ability to take care of their family because of traumatic brain injury, and somebody is responsible for that. And naming that is really, really important, just like when there was the big push for people to stop yanking their kids around by their arms. Mm -hmm. Because medical practitioners said there's a lot of kids coming into emergency rooms With these injuries, and this is what we're seeing, we have to name the behavior and the person responsible for causing this and really hold inside of ourselves that though there may not be a death at that moment, though the injuries are not something that we can necessarily immediately see, that there are long-term implications, and we have to start talking about that with people.
0: You know, I, I wanna ask you, Neko, kind of following from from that, you know, you, you talked about court watching. I know you're an abolitionist, so you're very kind of tuned into sort of the limitations of the carceral approach to domestic violence. You know, can you speak to the 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 level of criminal charging that does or doesn't happen in these kind of incidences?
2: Yeah, that's uh, so the reason why I am um an abolitionist and I am anti carceral is because I don't believe that the criminal legal system that we have in the West, right, and it's actually in the West, um, serves anybody. It doesn't provide accountability. It certainly does not provide justice. Um, That's why I don't call it the criminal justice system, because there's no justice in that space. It's actually a site of harm, especially for certain communities who are more disadvantaged. So I'm talking about Black and Indigenous communities who are over-incarcerated, over-surveilled, over-policed. So I I don't believe that the criminal legal system is a place to create community accountability. It's not the uh, space that creates um, restitution from harm. It actually incites and induces more harm. And I think about how I'll give you an example. Recently, um, in Toronto, the Toronto chief of police issued a, a statement because two police officers were suspended and were being disciplined because in November of last year, they were called to a domestic incident, as it's called, right, a domestic violence incident. Now, Toronto police, just like every police force in the country, has protocols on how to respond to a domestic call these two police officers showed up the person who was calling was a young black girl daniela M- uh, malia 21 year old who called them to say that she was petrified of her ex who'd been stalking her and she was really 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 afraid these two officers interviewed what of the officers interviewed her for 39 minutes interviewed him for 3 minutes and then left and said it was a she said, she, uh, he he said, she said, didn't document, didn't follow any of the protocols that they have in place. 72 hours later, her her ex-partner shot her and killed her. So months later, the Toronto police have now put these two officers on fully paid leave um, as they face a tribunal. So my whole thing is that the criminal legal system and all the adjuncts, the police, the crowns, judges, are part of a system that is failing victims of violence and is also failing perpetrators of violence. And if I, I ask every time I do this sort of talk with people in the criminal legal system, I ask them honestly, if you were to recreate, if you were today asked to create a system. That you know leads to accountability, leads to justice, leads to healing. Would you replicate what we have right now? And everybody thinks about it. Nobody puts their hand up and says, "You know what? Right. <laughs> this 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 current system is absolutely working perfectly. No, there's nothing to change." Everybody recognizes that it's not working, but people are too afraid. I think of what it would take to create something different, and I'm saying it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much. So that's why I'm an abolitionist. That's why I am anti-carceral, because people who are thrown away, everybody, right, who is in jail, um, are. it's an inhumane place to put human beings. And whilst there are people who need to be removed, separated from the rest of us in society, the, the current prison industrial complex is not that place it isn't that place we need to yeah. figure out ways that we treat each other more with humanity more with kindness and compassion and it starts from you know when they're little when we're young how we raise our boys how we raise our girls what society is putting out what the media is putting out it starts with community taking accountability before we can really expect individuals and systems to be to be held accountable
1: i i feel like sometimes You know, the debate between people who are like, we're going to we're going to the carceral system is the only system we have. And therefore, that's what we're going to lean on. Okay, that's true. It is it is the thing. It's the big gorilla in the room. Really, it's that's what it is. But we're not minding the basics.
0: Hmm.
1: We're not taking responsibility. We're saying, oh, we got this the system we're going to we're going to use the system. But we're not going to do the things that we need to do, that we can do outside of that, in order for us to talk about behavior, parental expectations. What are good parent parent behaviors of a male caregiver? Let's define that. Let's set those expectations because that's a basic thing that we do.
0: But it's not that hard. I mean, it's (laughs) really you know, if the whole
1: world was saying to men. You can't strangle your partner. You can't strangle your kids. It's bad for them. It That's just, a bad parent it, it, behavior. Just, how many men would stop?
0: I, just, well, but just also it, just sort of the idea you have to say that is just it's hurting stupid. my head. Um, <laughs> it really is, but it is. but you do. I think it is sort of to make those connections and operationalize them as something we need to work on
1: right.
0: going back to, you know, kind of connecting your broader point about abolitionism and and the failure of systems to. Serve survivors and and sort of appropriately serve whether it's in punishment or or separation or rehabilitation or accountability. Or accountability you know, perpetrators of people who cause harm. I, I'm gonna, you know, sort of make an observation from my experience is that the vast majority of these strangulation crimes are never charged, and if they're charged, they're charged at a misdemeanor level. <laughs> Yeah. If you know, and 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 so it's and the you know, behavior change and it's rarely is not
1: is not even present. But but there's <laughs> a big
0: and I want to point out for 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 listeners, you know, sort of tying back something. like you said when you were kind of bringing voice to some of the women you interviewed. You know, I thought I was going to die, and and then the system fails to reflect it. Even if the system gets involved, you're not treated. This is not treated. It's not charged as an attempted at homicide. No, at almost almost never. I mean, in my experience. And i really want to really draw that down is that when when people look at survivors who don't trust the system give up on it are angry at it feel feel abused by it that part of what builds partnering. when we talk about partnering builds trust is that idea that you understand my experience that you reflect it back to me right. that you see me and what i've been through and yes. so in this example is my take on it is we're so failing the professional systems professionals are so failing to partner with survivors because we're not even understanding the basic experience of a strangulation survivor. Is that does that seem fair to you? Oh,
2: absolutely, okay. absolutely brilliantly said. Because you know, and which is part of our work as this unique organization, we have a about 7,000 members globally. It membership is free, just doing a plug there. Um plug away, plug away. Yeah, and and what we're doing is engage in survivors who are the experts. We are the experts, right? We're engaging each other as experts to use our lived experience of the violence to figure out transformative ways of being in the world and helping those system players, those workers, um, those professionals, helping them understand that you need to engage us, you need to center us, in any program that's being developed, in any conversation that's being had, because we've lived it. We know what works and what doesn't. And uh, part of the reason why, I'm laughing now, why I started the organization was because when I, I first was going through my own, I was in family court, criminal court, and civil court at the same time with my ex and with three children and having an expectation that the you know that's my first engagement with the system yes i'm a lawyer but I, I i i'm not in practice but it was my first engagement and i had this very naive expectation of what the system you know what the legal system was going to to do boy was i shocked it did the it was diametrically opposed it did the opposite mm-hmm. and the harm and the violence that it it wrought was what started me thinking holy smokes i am in canada uh, English. I'm in Ontario, which Canada is bilingual, so French and English. I'm in a province that that speaks English. I am, you know, educated. I had money at the time, and still the system was failing me. And I started thinking, well, if I am not having a a, a fair shake, if the system is so violent to me with all the privilege that I have, imagine what it's doing to other women, women living with disabilities, living women living in rural. Uh, communities, women who don't have money, uh, new newcomers and refugees. Right? Imagine what it was doing. Women living below the poverty line. Imagine what the system was doing mm-hmm. to them. And so, the work of the organisation was to help systems understand. Because when I started speaking, I was dismissed. Right? Mm-hmm. People, service workers, would talk about survivors as broken. Right, and would speak for us. And you know, they don't know. And it was a savior bullshit. I hope I can say bullshit. It was you a can savior. Absolutely. <laughs> <say> <laughs> I she all curses
0: all the time. On the
2: I cuss uh, like a sailor, usually I do. Um, it was all this, you know, the, the nonsense that they would spew and frame survivors as we we needed people to speak for us. And I'm thinking, I don't need anybody to speak for me. I am right. fully present, fully aware, fully competent. So Started the movement of getting survivors to be centered mm-hmm. in the work and educating all the players, regardless of you know whether they worked in immigration, child welfare, league family, criminal law. it didn't It didn't matter to us. We needed to help them understand the totality of our lives and how each system, you know, overlapped and interplayed to compound the violence.
1: Right. And to, and to lock us into a space and also to help a perpetrator feel justified in their behaviors and also give them the sense that there was no accountability for it. So really diminishing the impact and the behavior on their part. You know, I, I really thank you for, for, for doing what you're doing. It's incredibly important And I would like to say to all the professionals out there who kind of straddle the line between some people are deeply uncomfortable with lived experience experts and 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 they're worried um, that 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 means that unless you have an experience of domestic abuse or child abuse that you can't speak to survivors' experiences. The key to speaking to survivors' experiences is to listen to survivors' experiences and to value them and to believe the impact Mm -hmm. and then to map out that impact and understand how it's playing out in all of these different systems. So it's incredibly vital, actually, that we have organizations like your organization, Women at the Center, where we hear those experiences And we hear those experiences from perspectives where people have had education like you, you're a lawyer, you know, you know how to frame this information in a specific way for specific organizations and institutions. And that is a very valuable, valuable service that you are giving, not only to survivors, but also to the professionals who lack the tools and awareness and language and understanding To appropriately service survivors and help them to find safety Mm -hmm. and help them find safety on
2: their own in the way that they say that they need safety. Exactly. And and Ruth, I mean, thank you for that. But I, I will echo it back to you and David because what you folks are doing is it's it's mirror mirror in. It mirrors what we are doing, right? You are centering the voices of survivors and you're holding not just the systems accountable the, the people within the systems accountable but your help it's not you're not pointing fingers you're not calling people out you're calling people in and I think that's the the most uh sometimes
1: I like calling people out uh, Though I know I get that I get
2: that <laughs> <laughs> and I'm here for that, okay. I'm, completely yeah. here for
1: that. <laughs> I'm a little Latina you know I'm like hey stop that. I'm here <laughs> for that <laughs> yeah
0: I, I thank you for that. I really appreciate that, you know, because I, I, I feel like you're seeing what we're trying to do. I, I, in that vein, I actually have a real, I have a real curiosity. You said something about professionals um, sort of um, kind of putting survivors in a box, I guess, about they're broken, right? Mm-hmm. And and your take on what I see as a tension, which is how much work has needed to happen over decades, mostly by um, women survivors and activists saying this is a problem like you you need to you need to wake up and you need to see the problem which means you need to see the harm you need to say the way it damages our lives you need to see the way it stops us from being fully functioning human beings right so so that's that's a real need and a real effort at the same time if that's all we get then at the end of the day we just Think we start thinking of survivors as as purely broken people as just sort of one dimensional victims. This is some of the tension about victim survivor language, and so I'm just curious how you make sense of that. What I see is that tension, or those two kind of, you know, survivors are are so uh, so many of them are so functional, or you know, despite the the violence, or they're they're even better people. I hate to say it, but you know, talk about this research will say. Survivors, some survivors are better parents than non-survivor parents because of the way they attend to their kids' needs and focus on their kids' needs. So I, I, there's so much richness there that isn't just one-dimensional of oh, somebody's, their trauma can yeah. be brought down to their trauma. So can you speak to that, how you understand that?
2: I love that question because um, I talk about why my work, I I love what I do. There's no money in social justice. Anybody who wants to get into it because they want to, you know, live a fancy lifestyle. There's no money in social justice, but the rewards of doing the work are, you know, it, it's it's priceless. It really is priceless, and it is priceless because for me and for every survivor that I have ever met, who I, I'll talk about the organisation. Every survivor who's joined the organisation. There's a question in in the sort of the uh, application, why do you want to get involved? I think I would say 99.9999% of the survivors who join say that they want to get involved because they want to use what happened to them so that it doesn't happen to anybody else. Mm-hmm. And so it's a it's a vocation. I think this is, it's like, you know, priests and nuns and and doctors, it's a vocation. To get into this space because you feel a compulsion. That's number one. Secondly, the thing about survivors making uh, excellent parents, of course we do, because we've spent time navigating, right, negotiating on the, by the by the day, by the hour, by the minute, by the second. We are negotiating um, strategies. We're creating strategies around. How to minimize, mitigate trauma, and you become really good at problem solving. You become mm-hmm. really good at it, and you also become good at holding multiple people in your arms whilst you are trying to keep yourself safe. Right? you you worry if when you have children, you're worrying about your kids and you're worrying about yourself because you you know you can't leave your kids. You can't, it, it's a really complex maneuvering that survivors do and and it, it's it's a contact sport right it it's a heavy mm-hmm. heavy heavy um weight that we bear but everyone every one of these women that I've ever met I I would drink I would invite them to my rooftop and we will drink Chardonnay because they are incredible mm-hmm. we are incredible we are a force so yeah. I I I don't see the weakness in survivors I don't see it in myself. I've never seen a survivor who I would look at and feel sorry for. I'm saddened by their experiences, but I, and it's an empathy thing. It isn't, it isn't a sympathy or a pity. I don't pity survivors. I, I, I admire, and I am proud to be one of, th- of those people. But the the other side of it is that I feel lucky because I did survive. And I know that there are so many other women and their children who who didn't survive. And I, I don't use the language of lost their lives. They didn't lose their lives. Somebody took it, right? There are so many who have died by femicide. And again, language is important. We are, um, when you read in my bio, it said that I'm part of, I'm a, an expert panel member of the Canadian Femicide Observatory for Justice and Accountability. And I'm also co-founder of the Black Femicide Canada Council, we are deliberate in using the language of femicide as opposed to homicide or murder because femicide is about the killing of women and girls because of their sex and gender because they are women and girls and how the system fails to take accountability right and the perpetrators fail to take accountability because the overwhelming majority of women who are killed are killed by somebody who's known to them a family member a, a current or an intimate um, partner or you know somebody somebody that they know it's not the stranger that jumps Damn. out from the bushes. It is somebody that they know and home is not safe for women. Nowhere is safe. So it, it's the language of femicide. And we do this work because we need to prevent others from losing, from, from, you know, t- having their lives taken and all the potential that they could have brought into the world is now wiped out.
1: I love that you can hold both of the polls of impact. I'm trying to show my hands. On this <laughs> Both of the poles of impact in your work, because a lot of times when I look at people who are doing femicide work, they're only focusing on death. They're only focusing on that. They're not focusing on the range of experience of harm and impact that survivors are actually experiencing because of these different forms of perpetration. And so I just love that you are holding all of that up for people to see because it's it's vital. I think when people just think of us as oh we want to keep women from dying they're really they're really just saying that's the bottom line measure for society just keep them from dying. You know, it's all good if they're, you know, harmed and damaged for the rest of their life and their children are traumatized. And, and really what survivors are saying to professionals and to the system is that's not good enough. Cool. It's not good enough. It's not good enough for you to just focus on femicide. We do have to focus on that. But we have to hold the whole range of experience and impact in our work so that we can actually service survivors who are not dead exactly. and keep them from dying, exactly. you know, so, you know, and keep that 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 actual you know, final demise from happening. Because if we don't focus on the behaviors that precede that, then we are really just going to miss a tremendous amount of, of impact and perpetration and trauma and harm.
0: I was going to start moving us to, to ending, but I have one more thing to say before we Sorry. do that. No, no, you have to, no. know. Part of it is, is I could listen to the two of you talking forever. And and, and I think I'm committing to us bringing you back, necker because we haven't talked about, more about the sort of, uh being out quote unquote as a survivor in a professional field you know sort of I'd love to talk to you more about the black femicide work and, yeah. and just the intersectional stuff and the abolition stuff so I, I'm committing to 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 being back but I, I was just thinking about what you were just saying Ruth and I was thinking about when I heard and I'm trying to remember who it is the child protection expert who was um talking about sort of how much we center child safety which is a safety from physical violence right primarily and again the parallels how much we center risk of you know deterring homicide or kind of preventing future like so the very extreme physical harm Mm -hmm. which is important to do and he said but if we center in child child protection if we if we center child well-being you can't have child well-being without physical safety but it 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 sort of inverts the conversation because i think in in a lot of places it 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 well-being is downgraded right I and mean, that's what kind of you're speaking to yeah. and i think this is the value of the course of control framework i think the the thing about domestic violence human rights mm-hmm. and liberty and deprivation freedom, right? kind of frame that's why we talk about functioning you know so much with the institute about impact of perpetrators on, on on child partner and family functioning because it's so much about understanding that uh we don't want just freedom from a particular act of physical violence we want people to have freedom to live their lives as full human beings that's my goal. And and, and for so,
1: families to be together you know, and, in, a, in, right. in a way that's safe, stable, supported, yeah. self-determined. Communities. Energy, you that's know. right.
0: I mean, the whole thing, and, and and just why we're talking more about reparations from perpetrators or mm-hmm. people use harm, because it's not enough that sort of, I didn't hit you today, or even I haven't hit you in the last three years, or I haven't abused you. But if I'm a parent, particularly, I need to, to do repair work you know i should be expected to do repair work and that should be the standard that's a all their conversation but i do think we need to center well-being in these conversations and i think use that as the benchmark Have the perpetrator the person choosing to do the harm hinder well-being of this their partner ex-partner or their kids or their family it, it isn't just be you know we're looking at lethal or near lethal or or the physical impact of the incident yeah. where it's got to be this bigger, bigger lens. Agreed. Um, so, so we are, oh, I think like at an hour. That's, that's yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know. It felt like it went by so quickly. Um, Love it. Love it. And so Neko, as we said to you at the beginning, is there, is there a main message you want professionals to take away from your work in this podcast that you'd like to say to them?
2: Um, To the professionals, it goes back to uh, working in partnership with uh, survivors and respecting survivor autonomy, survivor brilliance, survivor expertise, and understanding that they have so much to learn from us. And we are... You know, we're all on the same page. We all want the same thing. And the only way that we are going to get this thing of eradicating violence against women, girls, gender, in fact, eradicating violence from our communities, which I believe is possible, the only way we can get there is if we all work together. And we work together from a a basis of we lead with love right? We lead with kindness. We lead with compassion, including to people who've caused harm. Because I talk about how hurt people hurt people. I didn't make this up. Somebody made this up. Hurt people hurt people, harmed people, harmed people. And it's one thing to scapegoat the individual and they should be accountable. But society has a role. Society played a role in creating that individual. Mm -hmm. Society has to have a role in healing that individual, which is why When we get back next time, we're going to talk about transformative justice, uh, community community, uh, accountability. But yeah, it's, it's about sort of human kindness and human compassion is the way we need to wake up in the morning and look at each other, regardless of where we are on the spectrum. Because I know there are many people who are, quote, professionals, I'm using the air quotes, who themselves are survivors, but have been shamed and silenced into not own in that right so to be able to enter space of advocacy and activism with your full self as your full self knowing that we're all in this together it's like the last word
0: yeah i mean I, i boom yeah really i mean we we usually ask if there's something you want to say to survivors but you said earlier you gave a clear message to survivors earlier about you don't deserve this and you know i don't know if there's anything more you want to add to that or or that last comment was a, it was a good place to to end. Yeah. You think?
1: I do. I'm just I'm really grateful to know that you're out there doing your thing. Mm-hmm. That's you know just truly it's, really-
2: <laughs> it's got me all yeah. emotional. Thank you. And I'm really grateful to the two of you because as I said when I met David and it was mic drop to hear this cis white man <laughs> standing there. <laughs> Seeking truth to power. And I thought, yep, yeah, I want to hang out with him. And then he introduced yeah. me to Ruth. And I'm thinking, yeah, I want to hang out with the two of them.
0: <laughs> so we've been hanging out and we'll hang out together more. So thank you, NECA McGregor. And we'll we'll have you back on the show. And to our audience, we've been uh lis- we've been listening we've to been listening. <laughs> we've been listening to well, we've been listening to to Necco, who's been amazing. But you've been listening to Partner with a Survivor and um I'm David Mandel, and you are.
1: I'm Ruth Ramundo Mandel, and okay. we have the Safe and Together Institute. And if you would like some resources, please visit our website at safeandtogetherinstitute.com. And also, if you would like to get more training and tools to be domestic abuse informed and to work with families who are involved in domestic violence, go to academy.safeandtogetherinstitute.com.
0: Okay, and, and we're out. out.